The following KOPN podcast is made possible by the generous donations of listeners like you. Please consider a donation to listener-supported community radio, KOPN. You can donate securely on our website at kopn.org. Hi, welcome to Food Sleuth Radio, where we help you think beyond your plate. I'm Melinda Hemmelgarn, a registered dietitian and investigative nutritionist on a mission to connect the dots between food, health, and agriculture and find food truth. And today, it is truly my honor to welcome my guest, Lori Taylor. She is a clinical dietitian and educator at the crossroads of nutrition, medicine, agriculture, and sustainability. I feel like Ms. Taylor is a treasured colleague because she brings an integrated vision to the path of restoring health, one that encompasses both individual choice and also, importantly, advocacy for system change. She has close to 25 years worth of experience in patient care, education, and healthcare consulting. She's worked in a variety of settings, including hospitals, universities, embassies, community organizations, and private practice. She is trained as a biochemist. She got her degree from the University of California at Berkeley. She holds a master's degree in education from Stanford University, as well as in nutrition from Bastyr University. She is one of a handful of dual-trained dietitians who work in both conventional and natural medicine environments, and she's board-certified in oncology nutrition by the Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics, and she has specialized training in the treatment of functional digestive disorders through the Institute for Functional Medicine. She also holds a permaculture design certificate and is a graduate of the Ecology of Leadership program from the prestigious Regenerative Design Institute in Bolinas, California. In addition, she's a small-scale beekeeper, and she shepherds a burgeoning urban food forest at her home on beautiful Whidbey Island in Washington State. Now, in 2016, she launched Save Your Plate, which is an educational initiative that teaches healthcare practitioners about the medical consequences of our larger food environment and inspires us all to work for change. She is also a professor of integrative and functional nutrition at Saybrook University in Pasadena, California. Welcome, Lori. Thank you, Melinda. It's you, always so great to have someone read my bio because it it reminds me that I've had an interesting life that I need to be grateful for. It's <laughs> It's been a long journey through a number of places I've lived and folks I've worked with, and it's just wonderful to be on the show because we get to talk about the, some of the core and deeper issues in nutrition, and I really appreciate the invitation to come on. Well, as I mentioned, it is my honor. And when I was reading through your bio and I saw that you were trained as a biochemist, a little light came on and I said to myself, oh, biochemistry, that answers all the why questions. It's such a good foundation for a nutritionist to have. And not many of us have really been trained or have extensive training in biochemistry. So I really welcome your insights about the topic that we are going to be talking about today, which is the ketogenic diet, as well as intermittent fasting. And I saw a webinar that you did for Saybrook University for healthcare providers, and I wanted to dive deeply into that presentation because it is such a popular way of eating now. And I think there's a lot of misinformation and confusion, so I want to set the record straight. So let's just start out with what is your definition of a keto diet? So a, a ketogenic diet is a diet that causes people to produce ketones. So there's a way to do it when you're eating food, which is the diet, and there's a way to do it when you're not eating food, which is through intermittent fasting. 
So ketones are uh, produced by our body when we don't consume carbohydrates or we consume very little carbohydrates. And they're a way for our bodies to transfer energy from stored fat to feed our muscles, to preserve our muscles. If we didn't have this capability, we would be turning our muscles into glucose to -hmm. feed our bodies. And we do some of that to some degree. But for long-term periods of not eating for uh, Paleolithic humans, which was the norm, the three meals a day that we have is more of a cultural setup based to support an agricultural society. But as humans, we went through long periods without eating, and then we might have a whole bunch to eat. And in those periods without eating, we would produce ketones from stored fat to fuel our brain and our muscles. And so a ketogenic diet is a, is a little bit different from that because it's a way to do it while still eating. Mm-hmm. But for paleolithic humans, we produced ketones whenever we went through any more than about 12 to 18 hours without food. Mm-hmm. Okay. So you and I have been in this profession for decades, and we've seen different versions of ketogenic diets come and go. For me, my first experience with a ketogenic-type diet was the Atkins diet. It was very heavy in meat and animal fat and very low in fruits and vegetables and fiber. And we have different iterations, but correct me if I'm wrong, but it seems that one of the common threads through regardless of which iteration of the ketogenic or low-carb diet we see, is that these diets are indeed low in carbohydrate and therefore low in fiber. Would you agree with that? Yes. I mean, the reason that that the body uses carbohydrates as a marker for food intake is because they're, they're in most foods that people would eat outside of pure sources of fat or animal meats. So if you're a human and you're eating anything, it's going to have some carbohydrates in it, either sugars or starches, or it's going to have fiber, which is a carbohydrate that we don't digest. So typically when people go through some form of carbohydrate restriction, they tend to also, unless they're careful, restrict foods that happen to be high in fiber because some of those are the same foods. For example, whole fruits would be one. You know, they have the sweetness of fructose, and they also contain fiber, which is a non-digestible form of carbohydrate. We can't digest it, but our gut bacteria live on it. Mm-hmm. Um, other examples, and whole grains are an example. Some nuts, things like cashews, that they're, you know, nuts are not all fat. Most people don't recognize that. So there's a little bit of carbohydrate in everything. Mm-hmm. And if you're looking at whole plant foods, they tend to have carbohydrates and fiber. Another example is legumes, which is very popular for people to omit from their diets right now. And so when people take the carbohydrate out, they tend to also have diets that are low in fiber unless they pay attention to it. But I want to back up for just a second. So this thread of looking at the amount of carbohydrate in our diet is a worthy one because we're eating more than we ever have. And we know that it promotes us to have high levels of insulin and can promote insulin resistance and weight gain. And so you know, carbohydrate restriction is a reasonable thing to do. A ketogenic diet takes it to a very extreme level, as did an Atkins diet. But those two diets are different. What they have in common is the low carbohydrate. What's different about them is that the ketogenic diet also restricts the amount of protein to just what the body needs and no more because protein can be converted to glucose, which is a carbohydrate. So when we eat high amounts of protein, we can actually make glucose out of that, which will prevent us from going into ketosis, which is the state of making ketones. Mm -hmm. So a ketogenic diet is different from an Atkins diet in that it's 
it's not high in protein. It's just enough protein to meet needs, and the remainder of the calories come from fat. Right. So it ends up being a really quite a high-fat diet, mm-hmm. uh, moderate protein, low carbohydrate. So that does make it a little challenging to carry off because the, the Atkins diet was more about, well, just don't eat carbohydrates and eat things, eat things that don't have carbohydrates. With the ketogenic diet, you have to make sure that you're not exceeding your protein needs or you will not enter ketosis. Right. So people spend a lot of time managing what's called their macros. That is their macronutrients and the percentage that they're getting from carbohydrates, fat, and protein. So the ketogenic diet just takes a lot of focus. And so ketones are made in that diet because there's not enough carbohydrate. But it is a little bit of a, a what's a, a, one of my colleagues, Chris Masterjohn, calls a biohack. We are tricking the body into thinking that it's not eating while still giving it food. So it's a much more complicated way of eating than Atkins was, even though it shares some similarities. That's great. So since we're talking about counting macronutrients, protein, fat, and carbohydrates, how many grams of carbohydrate is typically consumed on a ketogenic diet? It's interesting. There's typically consumed and there's what the research shows. And it's actually very difficult. I spend a lot of time looking for what does the research say that that number is. So it can be anywhere from some people recommend 20 grams of carbohydrate a day to up to 50 grams of carbohydrate a day. And just for example, you know this and I know this, but like a one-third cup serving of rice or pasta or potatoes or something starchy is 15 grams. It can even be a quarter to a third of a cup is 15 grams of carbohydrates. A tablespoon of a sweetener is 15 grams. So we're talking about really, really quite low numbers or carbohydrate intake. And there's not necessarily a one-size-fits-all because some people will make ketones at a higher level and some will make them at a lower level. So I see this range of 20 to 50. And people tend to err on the side of, of being fairly low, which to your earlier point may cause them to restrict foods that contain fiber. Mm-hmm. For uh, example, oh, go ahead. The, fruit, the vegetables that they might need to eat, they have to be limited to above-ground vegetables. So greens and asparagus and summer squash, not the winter squashes, cauliflower, cabbage, red peppers, avocados, things like that, the no-root vegetables, nothing that grows underneath the ground, carrots, potatoes, anything like that. So the choices for maintaining a good fiber intake are difficult. They're limited on a ketogenic diet and really require a lot of focus to be able to maintain because one of the things that happens when people go on a ketogenic diet is that they stop eliminating regularly. They become really constipated because their whole gut microbiology changes, their gut ecology changes. Mm -hmm. Uh, And they're changing the amount of carbohydrates they normally eat. And then they're also typically eating less fiber and more fat. And that causes a whole shift in their functioning. Personally, with all of the seasonal fruits and vegetables that I wait all year for, I would find this diet extremely difficult to follow, and I have spent so much time looking at fiber's role in nourishing the microbiota or the bacteria that live in our gut that I have a red flag when it comes to this diet. However, as you presented in the webinar, there are cases when this diet has been found to be effective. So you speak about it as being protective for someone who has uh, certain types of epilepsy, It may be helpful with certain forms of cancer. Do you want to talk about perhaps the section of the population that might want to investigate this diet further? 
Sure. And I really appreciate your comments about how challenging this diet is. Yeah. That should be a clue that it's a pretty, what I consider uh, in natural medicine, it's a high-force dietary intervention. That is, all of these diets and all of these ways of eating are essentially tools for us to achieve something. Unless we're eating, you know, sort of seasonally, we've got, you know, really no major health problems if we can eat seasonally and, you know, good amount of plants and good quality food. But most of the diets that we have designed are to do something. And the ketogenic diet is typically found to be really quite helpful with some neurodegenerative disorders. So you spoke about epilepsy. So especially for children, this is where it has a long history of use, is in refractory pediatric epilepsy. And the refractory part means that the the medications that we typically use for epilepsy aren't really helping kids not have seizures. So these children would go on a very low-carbohydrate, moderate-protein, high-fat diet to control their seizures. And in some children, it's extremely effective, and parents are really grateful. But you can imagine how difficult it would be as a child to mm. to be with your other friends and not have sweets or a birthday cake or a piece of fruit. You know, it's it can be really quite challenging, but typically the results are worth it. When we look at the strong evidence in terms of humans, we do see that it is helpful with weight loss, but we've the studies have looked at a ketogenic diet and compared it to a low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet, which is a pretty low bar. We now know enough about carbohydrates and insulin and insulin resistance. You know, a low-fat, high-carbohydrate diet doesn't really work for very many people. Mm-hmm. And we don't have long-term studies that show do people keep the weight off. So anybody that watched the whole Atkins trend knows that people would lose weight and then have trouble transitioning back to a normal diet and maintaining those losses. There is some real emerging evidence in the areas related to glioblastoma, which is a very aggressive cancer of the brain, degenerative neurologic diseases like Lou Gehrig's disease, Alzheimer's, Parkinson's disease, even traumatic brain injury. This is because the change that happens in a ketogenic diet to the microbiome shifts how those organisms communicate with our nervous system. So we do see some real benefits, and even on the intermittent fasting front where people are just not eating for 12 to 18 hours in a day, you know, overlapping that with when they sleep, you do see what are called processes called autophagy, or cleanup processes in our nervous system. And so there are benefits to the nervous system of going into ketosis, that is the process of us making ketones, because it causes it to function a little bit better. And this makes sense if you're thinking about Paleolithic man without food for long periods of time. It helps that the, the ketosis makes the brain sharper, and it helps the organism be able to find food. It would not be functional if the ketosis made the brain worse. So right. there's some real important evolutionary underpinnings, and we can use a diet where people are still getting nourished, they're still getting calories and meeting their protein needs, but we can use it to shift their neurological function. And that's really primarily where most of the evidence at this point lies. And it's, in those cases, it's worth the challenge of this difficult diet. Yeah. But, I, there are, but there's all sorts of ways we can make ketones without. Yeah. That's what we're going to talk about in the second half. So let me remind our listeners, if you're just joining us, you're tuned into Food Sleuth Radio. We are speaking with one of my favorite dietitian colleagues, Ms. Lori Taylor. And I'll shorten her bio just for the midway. She is a professor of integrative and functional nutrition at Saybrook University in Pasadena, California. But she has over 25 years experience in all sorts of nutrition education, as well as sustainable food systems. 
I think that you made a wonderful segue from the ketogenic diets to intermittent fasting. And I became interested in this topic at our Academy of Nutrition and Dietetics meeting years ago when I heard someone from, I believe she was with Scripps in San Diego, Dorothy Sears, she was doing research on intermittent fasting, but also paying attention to circadian rhythm. And she mentioned that in looking at thousands of women who had had breast cancer, the one single best predictor for a 36% reduction in recurrence of breast cancer was this window of eating that limited eating where there was a 13-hour fast. So your last meal at night to your first meal the next day, there was a 13-hour gap there. Now, I know from your webinar that you have actually looked at, in cancer treatment, widening that gap even longer, looking at anywhere from 16 to 18-hour fasting periods between the last meal of one day and the first meal of the next. So let's talk about intermittent fasting and let's look not so much at the every other day fasting, but let's focus on this time-related fasting where you've got these windows of eating and how long is ideal? How long is ideal, I think, is still to be determined. And I'm starting to understand from some of the research that's coming out that there's a, that, that even differs between the genders. Mm. Uh, that men benefit from a shorter eating window, maybe an eight-hour eating window, and women may need a 10-hour window. So that would mean on a given day, if you keep the same schedule, if your first meal is at 8, if you're keeping a 12-hour eating window, your last thing you eat would be at 6 p.m., Right. The interesting thing about the research coming out of Scripps is they created a, an app called My Circadian Clock, and they gave this app to people, and they said, just send us a picture of what you're eating or drinking at the time that you're eating it, and we'll construct a fetogram for you. And when they got the results in, they looked and they said, well, wow, people are only really fasting when they're sleeping. And Melinda, both you and I know none of us really get the sleep that we should without really trying this culture. It's hard for anybody to get enough sleep. Right. So they said to these folks, Look, just cut your eating window down to 12 hours. I think they I believe they chose 12 hours a day. So don't change anything else about what you're eating. Just change the hours that you eat and keep them consistent from day to day. Mm-hmm. And when they did that, folks lost, I think, 10% of their body weight. They improved sleep just from cleaning up that eating window. Yeah. And so uh, one of the, Dr. Panda, I think that's his name, that's at Scripps, talks about a life that lifestyle is, not just what you do, but when you do it and how frequently. So that closing this window so that we're not eating all the time, that we're resting our gut, we're allowing our body to have some cleanup processes, and we're allowing it to have some time where it's not dealing with food, um, is meaningful in terms of promoting health. Mm-hmm. And the researcher, Mark Matson, who I believe works at Johns Hopkins, he's an aging researcher, he's one of the experts on fasting, talks about fasting as one of three metabolic challenges that people's bodies are improved by undergoing. So we know caloric restriction extends life, but no one wants to do it. It's no fun and you have to track your calories and you have to eat less than all the other people around you. But intermittent fasting, by closing that window, essentially does that to a degree because you have fewer opportunities to eat. And there is some possibility that it may extend life and reduce the rate at which we age because it provides a challenge to the organism that causes us to sort of upregulate all of our enzymes and systems that keep us healthy. The other two challenges that he said, that metabolic challenges are eating vegetables, 
because some of those phytochemicals are slightly toxic. So I tell kids, like, if you want to know why vegetables don't taste exactly like you want them, they're slightly toxic, and it's a superpower to be able to eat them. Yeah. So the slight toxicity of vegetables and of intense exercise. So those three things, intermittent fasting, eating more vegetables, exercising for intense amounts for short periods of time, all enhance the fitness of the organism. They all make our bodies realize we need to perform better. Right. So it's just very compelling to see this intermittent fasting because it's a tool that's accessible to everyone. No yeah. one has to buy anything or do anything in particular. You do this not a product. And you can even start with patients since you don't have to make any dietary changes. And what if the nutrition therapy of the future was healthcare professionals advising people to improve the quality of their food and tighten up their eating windows and just see what happens from that. Oh, I agree. So compelling. It's so exciting. And with all of the things that we were talking about with the keto diet, they also start bleeding into the intermittent fasting. And I can only speak from personal experience, you know, where you go out with friends and before you know it, you're having drinks and maybe some hors d'oeuvres and it's nine o'clock at night, maybe 10 o'clock. And you think, oh my gosh, I've got to have this window where I'm not eating and drinking. And I think if I recall correctly from Dr. Sears' talk, she said, even if you just do it five days a week, so you can give yourself the right. weekend off, right. but move in this direction of having this eating window. The other thing is, of course, everybody wants to know, well, I can do it, but I can't give up my coffee in the morning. And I think she even said, as long as you're not introducing carbohydrates to break the fast, the body seems to be okay with that. That's correct. And that's driven this big trend in bulletproof coffee where people are putting large amounts of medium chain triglyceride oil in their coffee because that can also boost the body to make a little bit more ketones. I don't find putting a bunch of oil into my coffee particularly appealing. But if your coffee does not contain carbohydrates, then it's, or your tea, you know, it's not breaking your fast. Exactly. So it is helpful. And I really like intermittent fasting because I think that when you look at how humans evolved, as Americans, we tend to sort of be this extreme all or nothing culture. But what's probably, the way we have evolved and what's probably going to come out to be healthier and more sustainable for us long term is this intermittent exposure to ketones, the daily exposure to a small amount, you know, the maintenance level that keeps us in good shape, not these periods of intense ketogenesis, which are very, very hard for people to maintain and actually not accessible to a great deal of the population. So mm -hmm. there is still this healing ability of, of being able to give the brain regular doses of ketones just by regulating your eating window every day. Yeah. And you also mentioned in your webinar, and I'm sure people are very curious now about this webinar, so I will provide a link to it. This is a webinar you did for Saybrook University. But you also mentioned, again, with these specific populations, individuals who are going through chemotherapy, and you spoke about a pre and post fasting yes. with chemo, right. seeming to make a big difference with regard to improving effectiveness of the drug. Well, I need to clarify that those pre- and post-chemotherapy fasts have been done in rodents. Okay. So far, unless I've missed some of the newer research, the clinical trials have been done to establish the safety of fasting in cancer patients. Got and it. These are cancer patients undergoing the platinum-based chemotherapies, which are, are not the nicest ones. Right. And those trials came out actually quite well. But what the study showed in mice was that if you could fast prior to chemotherapy, 24 to 48 hours prior, that... What that does is it's the holy grail of oncology. That is, what's going to affect the cancer cells and not affect the healthy cells? Healthy cells know when there's no energy, 
we're going to shut down and be really quiet. Cancer cells, the way that they cause harm is that they grow at an extreme rate no matter what the environmental conditions are. So it takes advantage of that differential. And so when there's pre-chemotherapy fasting, the healthy cells are quiescent and don't experience as many side effects from the chemotherapy, while the cancer cells are highly active because they're still metabolizing. Mm-hmm. So it's very interesting. So there's levels of 24 hours before or 48 hours before, and even it's best if people can do 24 hours after. Well, this I should say in mice, that's what's been shown. Right. However, translating that to human experience is a little bit different. And I hear people say, well, aren't you worried about your chemotherapy patients losing weight? The study showed in the clinical trials in humans that they regained, they lost about a pound and regained that in a week. And you have to counter that with the fact that if they have a really bad reaction to chemotherapy, often they're losing weight from not eating post-chemotherapy. Right. So it's an interesting thing to be able to, for people to experiment with, if people can fast even just the day before. Right. Uh, that's a reasonable thing to do as long as their weight is in a reasonable place. Yeah. And I think you make an excellent point with regard to, you know, we start the studies on rodents and then we proceed to see how humans respond. But I think it's good for us to know what is going on in the research field. And Absolutely. Yeah. And then we and can when see. people have cancer, depending, there's sometimes not a lot of options. So it's actually unethical to withhold the information if they can try an option where the risk is low, but the gain is potentially there. Exactly. So it's good to have that information out there. Exactly. First, do no harm. I think that's right. a, a beautiful way to live and take the precautionary route. Well, Lori, we just have a minute or so left, and I want to put the ball in your court. You have such a wide range of expertise. Is there anything that you want to leave our listeners with specifically with regard to either the ketogenic or the intermittent fasting dieting approaches? I would say that for most folks, looking at reducing the amount of time that you're eating to a consistent window every day is an easy and likely very beneficial experience for you and your health. And I would like to encourage more healthcare professionals to be discussing it with their patients. It's not appropriate for every patient. If you've got a patient that's just got poor self-care skills, they might use that as a way to just continue to not care for themselves. But for most folks, it's a reasonable thing to say, have a 10 or 12-hour eating window during your day. And look at how's that going to affect your weight. A lot of people who have GI trouble, it cleans that up because their guts get a chance to rest. Mm-hmm. How does that going to affect your cognition? So there, it's just a, it's a really easy, accessible tool that I would encourage more people to learn more about. And it's something that you can sustain long term, where a ketogenic diet is a very high force intervention that you want to reserve for some specific situations where you know it's going to be a benefit to you. Yeah, that's great advice. And also in the webinar, and again, I will provide that link, but you do have individuals who should not fast. And that would include yeah. children, pregnant and lactating women, type 1 yeah. diabetics, etc. And you go into the reasons why. But in closing, Lori, I want to thank you so much for sharing your expertise. I know that our listeners will be anxious to learn more about you, both from your personal website as well as your excellent webinar that you provided. I need to let our listeners know, well, first I need to thank them for joining us and let everyone know that Food Sleuth Radio is produced by Dan Hemmelgarn at KOPN Studios in beautiful downtown Columbia, Missouri. And I want to extend a special thanks to my incredible guest, Ms. Lori Taylor, fellow clinical dietitian. She's an educator at the crossroads of nutrition, medicine, agriculture, and sustainability. 
Her personal website is www.saveyourplate.net, and I will provide a link to the webinar in our big review. So, Lori, thank you so very much for your time today. Thank you, Melinda. It is always a treat to be on your show, and I would encourage folks to listen to that webinar, and if they have any questions about it or any of our, our integrative and functional nutrition program at Saybrook, to just you know, give, send me an email. I'd love to hear from you. That's wonderful. Thank you. Thanks so much, Melinda.